Okay, Numbers chapter 14 is where we continue in our study through the book of Numbers together. Last time we looked at chapter 13 together and made mention that Numbers chapter 13 and 14 record probably one of the most critical times in the history of the nation of Israel, a time when the nation of Israel finds themselves now at the edge of what we call the promised land. That time there at Kadesh Barnea, uh, they have uh, traveled a short distance, a short time in the wilderness, and now they've come to the edge of the promised land that God has been telling them about, this land flowing with milk and honey that he said that he would give to them all the way back as far as the time of Abraham when Moses received his call as a shepherd there in the wilderness when he uh, was in that place where God revealed himself to him and told him that he was the selected deliverer to go and deliver the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. All the way back at that point, that promise of God that he was going to take them out of their slavery and bondage in Egypt and ultimately that he was going to bring them into this good and spacious land uh, called the land of Canaan as we know it or we often refer to it as the promised land. And uh, we said to you last time and just for those of you who may not have been here last time just to kind of uh, set the, the tone and the background of this, that these things, the life in the, the promised land, are a picture of the life of a believer walking in the realm of the Spirit and the promised life of the Spirit that God intends for us as Christians. Some people uh, picture or portray the Canaan land or the promised land and hymnology and uh, certain things as if it's a picture of heaven, but because we see, even when we get to the book of Joshua and they actually go into the land and take it over, there are battles, there are enemies, uh, there are difficulties to deal with, and I don't, from what I read in the Bible, anticipate any of those things in heaven. I'm sure hoping when I get to heaven, there are no more battles, there are no more enemies, there are no more difficulties. I'm trusting that what God's word says is true, that there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more suffering. The former things have passed away and behold, God's made all things new. So what it pictures for us by way of type uh, sort of foreshadows the life of walking in the spirit where we are seeking to overcome the enemies of our flesh we're seeking to take territory that God wants to give to us victory in the life of the spirit that resurrected life of Christ that's available to us so it pictures for us from a New Testament perspective how God wants us to take territory in our spiritual life and gradually to overcome enemies of our flesh and to defeat things in our life that really are, are areas where God wants us to have victory in and to go in and inherit the fullness of the promises of God and that life in the spirit that he intends for all of us to have. Now, historically, as they come to this point, and they are there at the edge of the promised land. Chapter 13 recorded for us how they sent in 12 spies we saw to go and sort of survey the land for a 40-day period. Uh, and, and just by way of refresher, I just want to read a portion of chapter 13 again because as we ended chapter 13 and came to chapter 14, it's almost as if like we stopped and put up a spiritual to-be-continued sign because these two chapters flow together. Uh, but I want to just read a portion of chapter 13 just to lay it in your hearts and minds as a background and then we'll just continue on as the story flows into chapter 14. Again, if you look with me, let's just begin reading there in... Chapter 13, verse 25, as they're now returning back from having gone out to spy the land, it says they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. Remember, those 12 spies were selected and sent into the land, a representative from each tribe to go and survey the land, to see its topography, to check the cities, if they were settled or if they were cities with high walls and to get to know the people of the land and so forth, to examine the fruit of the land. So they now return after 40 days. Verse 26 says, now they departed, came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them and said, we went to the land where you sent us. 
It truly flows with milk and honey. This is its fruit. So again, they're testifying the land is exactly what God said it would be. God's word is true. The land is blessed. It's a prosperous land. It's a fruitful, fertile land. It's a rich land. It truly is just like God said it would be. What God said about it is true. Verse 28, that crux word there that always leads things down a negative path for any of us spiritually, nevertheless. What God's word said is true, but nevertheless, nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And that was true. The cities uh, are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites and Jebusites, the Amorites dwell on the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. So they begin to give report of some of now the what? The obstacles. The concerns, and these were legitimate concerns. These were realistic obstacles. These were genuine hindrances that they would have to overcome. And even the things they're saying are not things that God did not foretell them they would face. God never said it was going to be 100% easy. God never said that you're going to go into the land and you're going to find the Amalekites with their suitcases packed saying, uh, here's our tent and uh, by the way, here's my hoe. Enjoy taking care of my field for me. God never told them that. God said, you will dispossess the land and little by little, I will give it to you. It is yours. I am giving it to you. But God said there will be enemies. There will be obstacles. So these weren't unusual things that, you know, there were things that were legitimate hindrances and obstacles that they would have to overcome with God's help. But these become now the source of doubt and unbelief that rattle the faith of those spies that went in and caused them now to begin a negative or a bad report as unbelief and fear begins to grip their hearts they begin to see all the obstacles with their eyes and are visually taking in with their eyesight and their feelings what they see rather than walking in faith and trusting in how God would address the issues that were in front of them that seemed like obstacles. Well, verse 30, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession for we are well able to overcome it. So he speaks the voice of faith what the voice of the Spirit would speak to us, that we should walk in faith and not by sight. But verse 31 says, the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. True, but they weren't stronger than God. They were just stronger than them. Verse 32, and they gave the children of Israel, notice a bad report of the land, which they spied out saying the land through which we've gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people whom we saw are men of great stature. Then we saw giants, the descendants of Anak, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were also in their sight. So they begin to cast this negative discouraging, somewhat pessimistic report now uh, of some of the realities that were obstacles that they were facing in front of them. Now, they legitimately know that this is God's will for them. There's no question that this is what God told them to do. There's no question that God said he would give them this land, but unbelief now seeking to rob them of God's plans and intention for their life because of what they see with their eyes. And now they begin to speak in doubt and unbelief. And it's this fear, doubt, and unbelief that is going to cause a tremendous setback in the lives of God's people. In the same way as we talked about last time in great depth, unbelief can cause tremendous setbacks in our spiritual life. Unbelief can keep us from walking in the plans that God genuinely has for us sometimes. Unbelief can keep us at times unnecessarily struggling in areas of the flesh and still living in areas of sin where sin's dominating our life when the Bible tells us that sin shall not have dominion over us but that we can have victory through Jesus Christ over areas of temptation or spiritual weakness and unbelief can rob us and rip off our lives. So as this voice of unbelief is coming through now, it's countering everything that God has intended for them and they're now in the spot where one, we're going to see actually two, Joshua as well, two of the ten are saying, look, 
we should trust God and do this. But the other 10 are saying, no way, there are too many giants. Now, before we go into chapter 14, three things we mentioned last time were the things that led to them, as we're going to see, rebelling against God's plan and purpose and not walking forward in faith in what God intended for them and experiencing God's best for them. The first thing was, was that they were, in a sense, putting a greater emphasis on their own feelings and their thoughts rather than simply trusting the word of God itself. And, and they were letting their feelings and their thoughts begin to consume them and to control them. And they were legitimate feelings. They were legitimate thoughts. We can't discount that. Uh, these were genuine concerns. It wasn't as if these were unrealistic things. They were, these were legitimate obstacles. But their feelings and their thoughts began to grip their heart and began to rule over that faith in their lives. A another thing that took place is that the people there remember had forgotten God's track record. The mistake they're making in their unbelief is they're completely discounting the very faithful God track record that God has shown them so far. God has done miracle after miracle after miracle, and in a sense, they've forgotten their spiritual history. If anything else, they should have trusted God in this situation simply alone, if for no other reason other than the fact that God himself had been faithful so many times before in their, in their lives. And because God had been so reliable in the past, it should have given them great confidence to be able to trust the Lord with where they were at that time and say, look, because of what God's done before, he's worthy to be trusted in this situation because he's done so many incredible things before we can rely upon him in this present hour and also they were just very simply making their judgments and their decisions by what they saw with their eyes rather than what God had said to them very clearly in his word and like our Bible says to us in the New Testament that we walk by faith and not by sight and sometimes faith means just taking God at his word rather than viewing the circumstances or the situations. And if we know we have a clear word from God, whether it's something that's a clearly recorded truth or promise or declaration in scripture, then we base our decisions, our actions, our beliefs, our steps upon, look, but God's word says this and this has supremacy over no matter what I'm seeing with my eyes. If God's word says this is the right way to do something or handle something, it doesn't matter what it looks like circumstantially or what my feelings are. And in the same way, if maybe you have a personal word from the Lord, sometimes he gives us a, a personal word in our life of something that he wants us to step into. And if you know that the Lord has spoken to you about something, then there comes a time where you say, look, it may not look like it from what I can see circumstantially, but I know what God's spoken to me. Now, if you don't know that God's spoken that to you, don't be presumptuous. At the end of the chapter 14, they make a presumptuous mistake. Presumption's not good. But when you confidently know God's spoken to you, then you can walk in that in faith and trust God to sort out the details. Now, here they are making this statement and what are they doing? They're exaggerating the obstacles right? There were three giants they saw, but what did they say in the verses we just read? All the people are giants. All the people. There were three giants they saw. But what does unbelief do? Unbelief, I know I'm preaching last week's sermon again, I apologize, but sometimes repetition is good. Unbelief makes us exaggerate things. Yes, there were obstacles. Yes, there were walls. Yes, there were some giants in the land, but when unbelief begins to rule our heart and fear begins to take over in our lives, what that causes us to do is exactly what they are doing here. It makes us exaggerate the circumstances. Something that is this big, fear and unbelief makes it grow and grow and grow and grow. And then all of a sudden it's grown so big, the walls are all so big that, that we box ourselves in, in the exaggeration of our thoughts and feelings and that we don't even see God at all anymore because we've exaggerated and inflated things. And fear has that tendency to impact our lives in that way. And that's what's happening here as they come now giving this negative report. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Look at the detrimental effect. These 10 spies come back, and now it says, So all the congregation, 
lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. The idea is weeping, oh, woe is us. What are we going to do now? I guess God's promise isn't going to come to pass. And the children of Israel then, shocker, once again, complained. We've seen that word a few times, haven't we? So first they're weeping and grieving and mourning because it seems like such a, a horrible situation. The world is crashing in around them. It's just not going to happen. It's not possible. And now it says they begin to complain against Moses and Aaron, their leaders. And the whole congregation said to them in their complaining, look at this, if only we had died in the land of Egypt. Boy, that's, that's pretty bad. <laughs> If only we had just died back. In, it would have been better to have died there under the whips and the slavery in Egypt. Or if only we had just died in the wilderness. I mean, we, we, we had our deliverance experience. God should have just let us die in the wilderness before we got to the edge and saw this and now have to deal with the disappointment of it never happening because of the giants and walls and so forth. Verse 3, look how they go on. Why has the Lord brought us to this land, the idea is to the edge of this land, to fall by the sword, and that our wives and our children should become victims? So, look, they're, they're questioning God now. They're challenging and criticizing even the leading of God, saying, why would God do this? Why would the Lord deliver us out of that, bring us to this spot, and put this before our eyes just basically to just wreck our lives, to just destroy our Why would the Lord do this? And their perception in the midst of their fear and unbelief and the overload of all those things is they're actually, in a sense, questioning now the character of God. They're questioning the nature of God. They're saying, why would the Lord do this? It would have been better to just let us die where we were. Why? It's not on top of not... You know, letting us just die there why would he bring us out and then put us here and then just let us be slain by the sword and just let us die I mean, how, well, how kind of love is that and they even say that why would he let our wives and our children become victims here's what they're saying if we follow God's will it's going to ruin our family if we follow God's will and God's plan it's going to cause our family to suffer as a result and boy, I'll tell you, that's a real crafty lie of the devil. Because sometimes the Lord will be wanting to lead in some way in our lives. And I can tell you firsthand from my life personally, there have been times where the Lord has asked me to take a step of faith or obedience unto him. And the rational aspect of my life or the emotional experience that cares about your wife, your children, that begins to wrestle and say, if you do that, you're going to ruin your family's life. If you do that, you're going to cause conflict in your household. And, and you're, going to vic you're going to victimize your family by trying to take that step in obedience to the Lord. That, that's going to ruin your family. And sometimes the fear of what our family might think or that we might somehow harm our household or jeopardize something or inconvenience our family can cause us at times to withhold from taking steps of obedience in following the Lord or his plan for our life. And that's never a good thing, but that's a legitimate challenge we wrestle with as well. Look what they say as well, verse 3. Would it not be better for us, now they say, to return to Egypt? You know, it would just be better, they're saying, maybe we should just go back to Egypt. Now, you want to talk about getting really ludicrous. I want you to think about the departure of Egypt. Do you really think Egypt's going to roll out the red carpet and welcome back the Israelites at this point? Do you remember the 10 plague thing that caused economic devastation to the entire land of Egypt? You remember that last plague where all the firstborn sons of Egypt died because of Jehovah's execution and judgment upon them? And then you remember as they left Egypt, ultimately as they were sending them out in disgust, it says that they... The Egyptians said, look, please go. In fact, they started giving them all their supplies. Here, take our money. Take our, just whatever it takes. Just get out of our land. And they give away all their personal items. Then they have a change of heart and say, you know what? Wait, this is ridiculous. Why do we let those slaves go? And then they pursue them. And where do they do then? They pursue them into the Red Sea. And then God closes the Red Sea and destroys more Egyptians. Now, I want you to consider that and listen to what they're saying. You know, it'd probably be better, instead of facing this, we should just go back to Egypt. We'd probably get a better welcoming party back in Egypt. 
I mean, the, the, the complete irrational thought process that can come into the mind when fear and doubt and unbelief and the lie of the devil when he manipulates our emotions and our thoughts and feelings, the, the reasonings that we can come up with sometimes as if somehow our life back in Egypt, as if somehow your life before you were saved would somehow be better to return to than to keep walking forward and following Jesus. It, you know, Maybe it'd just be better to go back to life without God. I mean, just the irrational thought process that we can have at times when these things are pressing upon us. Verse 4, so they said to one another, now they got a new idea, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Forget this Moses guy and wanting to hear from God and follow, maybe we should just find ourselves a new leader. Let's pick one and and, and let him lead us back to Egypt. Well, verse 5, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly. Again, they they fall prostrate and humble themselves. They don't get angry because their authority is challenged, which shows you the purity of their heart as leaders. They're not upset. What are you you doing picking a new leader? I'm your leader. No, they fall prostrate because they have the fear of God and think, oh my goodness, if they keep rejecting God, what is this going to result in? They fall on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. The idea is they would tear their clothes in a, in a symbolic indication of like rending, you know, our hearts are rent. This was a symbolic way they would expressively indicate grief or deep emotion. They tear their clothes. And they spoke to the congregation of the children of Israel saying, the land that we pass through to spy out, look what they say, is an exceedingly good land. And if the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So the voice of faith now comes back to the forefront. And there is always that battle, isn't there? Even within us, the battle of our flesh and the spirit, where the flesh is sort of prompting us in unbelief and doubt and fear and rational thinking. And the voice of faith is trying to encourage us to trust God and and to take God at his word and to believe what God is able to do. And so uh, they speak up now, Joshua and Caleb, two of the ten, and say, look... It's a good land, and if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land. Again, they understand, look, we're we're the Lord's delight. He loves us like a father who delights in his children and wants to give everything the best possible he can to his kids out of that father. He says, look, if the Lord delights in us, he'll give us the land. We won't have to try and take it or somehow acquire it for ourselves. He will give us the land. He will bring us into the land and give it to us. The idea is that we'll just inherit it by faith. As we yield in faith, God will deliver to us what he wants to give to us. He'll bring us in. He'll give it to us. It will be the act of God. It will be the power of God that would accomplish it. It would be the provision of God. Their exhortation, verse 9, only do not rebel against the Lord. How would their rebellion be played out? In unbelief. Not following God's word and following God's will would be rebellion against God. Nor fear the people. Again, the Bible says the fear of man is a snare. But he who trusts the Lord is safe. So they say, don't rebel against the Lord in this unbelief and disobedience. He's called us to go forward. Don't fear the people. They say, they're our bread. Their protection has departed from them. In other words, look, if God pulls back the hedge of protection, they're not safe. It doesn't matter how big their armies or walls are. The key, I have these four words circled in my Bible. The Lord is with us. That's the defining difference. It doesn't matter how big their walls are, what they have to bring to the table, how strong they seem. The Lord is with us. And if the Lord is with you, if the Lord is with me, 
then really obstacles don't matter a whole lot because there's nothing too hard for the Lord. Jeremiah tells us as he was communicating with the Lord there in Jeremiah's prophecy, there's that passage where God speaks to Jeremiah and and, and Jeremiah in return says back to him, Ah, Lord God, you've created the heavens and the earth. There is nothing too hard for you. Nothing too hard for you. Again, the God who created the heavens and the earth, if he is with us, there is nothing ultimately too hard for him. So we need to remember the presence of the Lord is with us and not to let fear override that and rob us of our faith and confidence in what he is still able to do. But though the voice of faith speaks forth, notice all the congregation said, how about we stone these guys? <laughs> is that just tragic or what? I mean, they try and speak faith and encourage trusting the Lord. Uh, and the congregation says, you know what? Uh, I think we need to kill these two, get them out of the way so we can get this bandwagon back to Egypt. We need to just eliminate these guys, get them out of the way, silence them. Let's kill them with stones. Now, the glory of the Lord, it says, appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. So the presence of God is now manifest in this moment in a powerful way. And the Lord said to Moses, how long, we've heard him say this to Moses before, how long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I've performed among them? God says, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. So God says, how long are they going to keep rejecting me? How long will they not believe me after I've shown signs and wonders again? This wasn't a questionable issue. This was a clear cut thing. This was clearly evident. They knew this was the will of God. It was just how God's will was going to come to pass is what they couldn't process. This wasn't an issue of, is this God's will? This was a clear issue of God said, it's your land, I'm giving it to you, and them having to believe and walk it out in faith that God would do what he said he was going to do. So because of that, God says, why are they rejecting me? Why won't they believe in me? After all, I've shown them. And God now says that he's going to bring about discipline and judgment into their midst because of their unbelief. Verse 13 Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear it for by your might, you brought these people up from among them and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They've heard that you, Lord, are among these people and that you, Lord, are seen face to face and your cloud stands above them and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your fame will speak saying, because the Lord was not able to bring these people to the land which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. So God speaks to Moses, how long will they reject me? He then says to Moses, look, Moses, that's it. I'm going to eliminate these people. I'm going to begin again, establish a new nation with you and start over again. And at this point, Moses is prompted to begin to intercede. As we saw him do back in the book of Exodus, again, we find Moses standing in the gap now as an intercessor between God and the people. And standing as a mediator, an intercessor, a type of Christ, the picture here we see Moses as that intermediary between God and the people in regards to their sin against God, their unbelief, their rejection against God, even as Christ has done such for us. And Moses here begins to intercede. And I want you to notice what Moses is concerned about. Moses is concerned about God's glory. He's not concerned about his own self-interest. He says, Moses, here's what I'm going to do. How about we just eliminate all the people and I'll start a brand new nation with you. You'll be the father. That'll be a bunch of Mosesites. And, it'll, and, and I'll start a whole new nation with you. We'll just start afresh. And Moses, rather than capitalize on what's available for his own self-interest, he says, God, no. He says, God, because if the other nations here, 
that all these people are destroyed, what will happen is these other nations who've heard that you're this great and awesome God will develop the wrong idea and think, verse 16, because you were not able to bring them into the land which you swore to give to them, that's why you eliminated them. And he says, God, that would rob you of your glory. And Moses was so zealous for God's glory, he was more concerned about what would glorify God and God's reputation being upheld than his own self-interest in any given situation. Boy, I look at that and think, man, that is an attitude that we need to have more of. Where we would be more interested in situations in how we pray, how we respond, how we act in these testing moments in our lives. Like Moses was faced with a test here before the people of God and God himself, where Moses had the opportunity to say, you know what, that sounds like a great plan, God. How about let's do it? Just, I'm ready. Instead, he says, no, God, not what's in it for me, but God, whatever would glorify you most. And I don't want your glory to be robbed. And he wanted God to be glorified. And so he stands in the gap as an intercessor as the spirit prompts him to do such. Now, I want to read to you one verse before we move on here in relation to what Moses is doing. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 22. And let me read to you from Ezekiel 22 verse 30. It says this. At another time when God was about to judge the people historically throughout times in history, Ezekiel chapter 22 says this in verse 30. God says, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore, I poured out my indignation on them and consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Now, I bring that to your attention to show you this. As I said before, it's real easy to look at the Bible and say, man, God's a hothead. He's all full of wrath and ready to smoke people. And thank goodness Moses is level-headed. It's almost as if Moses is saying, hey, God, let's, let's be level-headed about this now. Let's think about your glory. Let's not destroy the people. Settle down. I mean, let's try this long-suffering thing. Remember God. And, but look, the Bible tells us here in verse 30 of chapter 22 of Ezekiel that God always seeks for an intercessor. God seeks for an intercessor to stand in the gap in prayer and intercede so that he wouldn't have to bring his judgment. So where does the idea, the inspiration come from in a human heart to stand in the gap and to intercede to forestall God's wrath? From God. God says, if I can find somebody to intercede, then I can do what I want to do, which is not judge people, which is not bring down my wrath. So Moses here, responsive to the inspiration of the Lord, stands in intercession, stands in the gap. And what a great reminder for us. Sometimes God's seeking for that. He's seeking for, notice, not a whole ministry, not a whole movement. He's seeking for a man, for a person at times who will just stand in the gap and intercede for a person or intercede for people. And that can make a huge difference. Maybe tonight God's looking to you, God's tapping on your shoulder saying, will you stand in the gap? Will you be the one person who will stand in the gap and make intercession so that the will of God can come to pass in a given situation? And here Moses stands in the gap, zealous for God's glory. Look at verse 17, he goes on, chapter 14, verse 17. And now I pray, he says, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken. And he now recounts, what God showed him back in Exodus 34. The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation. Pardon, Moses says, the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people, he says to God, from Egypt even till now. So Moses here in his intercession to forestall the wrath of God becoming really the answer to what God wants to do which is to pardon as he has pardoned Moses reminds him all the way from Egypt until now many times over he says Lord he calls upon him and he reiterates back to God in these verses the very things that God revealed to him Back in Exodus chapter 34 where God and Moses were having an encounter and Moses said, Lord, if you're not going to go with us, then don't send us. But Lord, show me your glory. 
God puts him in the cleft of the rock and as he passes by, he reveals himself to Moses and these are the same words that God says about himself, that he's long-suffering, that he's abundant in mercy, that he's ready to pardon. And so Moses prays now, and this is called wise prayer, he prays based upon the revealed nature of God. He says, God, this is what you've revealed about yourself. You've revealed you're a merciful God. You've revealed that you're abundant in mercy and that you delight to pardon. So God, I'm trusting that you haven't changed. You know what? Look, when you pray, the most effective way that you can pray is to pray according to the nature of how God has already revealed himself. As you get to know God by studying God's word and you get to know the heart of God, the nature of God, the will of God, what he's like, it helps you pray more effectively. Because you're here tonight on a Wednesday evening and studying a passage of scripture like this, when there come times in your life when you need to pray about your own spiritual life, your own struggles with sin, the own obstacles you're facing, situations, you can say, you know what? I know what God's like. Because I've been learning a lot about what he's been like as we've been going through the Old Testament and seeing these stories and accounts. I know what God is like. So I'm going to confidently pray and seek God according to the way that he's just revealed himself. Lord, this is what you're like. So I confidently ask you in light of that. And here Moses prays very wisely in that way. And verse 20, look what it says. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live, God says, though he forgave sin, consequences would still come to pass. And please take note of this. Because there can be forgiveness of sin but yet still there may be consequences as the result of the wrongdoing. Okay? If, if somebody murders a person, somebody can honestly murder a person and then genuinely hear the gospel of Christ, be repentant and grieve for their sin before God and become right with God and be cleansed of their sin and become eternally, spiritually right with God... But just because they're right with God and their sin is forgiven spiritually does not mean, however, that that cancels out the consequences circumstantially of the wrongdoing that they've done. And it doesn't mean that God's angry because the consequences still come. Let me say this. I think sometimes God tempers with mercy the consequences where they could be a lot worse if we were staying in rebellion to God. But notice here, God says, I've pardoned the sin but there were still consequences to be played out and to be experienced as a result of the wrongdoing. This is what the chapter goes on to show us. But truly as I live, God says, verse 21, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord because all these men who've seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness have put me to the test, God says, now these 10 times. And have not heeded my voice. So multiple times, God says 10 different times already, you've ignored my voice, you've put me to the test. We've seen many of them already in our prior studies. They certainly, verse 23, shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. So the consequence is that they would not enter in to what God had intended for them. Verse 24, however, notice God rewards faith and obedience, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. So God makes an exception for Caleb and he honors Caleb's faith. He says the consequence for the unbelief and rejection of the 10 spies and the rest is that they won't enter in but Caleb, because he had a different spirit. And what was that different spirit that God took notice of? It's described in verse 24, he followed me fully. Hey, that is the different kind of spirit that God wants us to have and that God will honor. A spirit that follows him fully. Lord, I will follow you fully in all things at all times. I love what the psalmist says, where the psalmist says that he keeps his oath even when it hurts. And you know what? Sometimes it's hard to follow the Lord. 
Sometimes it's difficult to follow the Lord fully, but God sees that. God takes notice of that. God sees those times when we stand in faith, when we walk forward in faith, even when it's hard, trusting Him and believing that He will still do what only He's able to do for us. And so Caleb is honored in that he himself will get to enter the land, though the others would not. Verse 25, God says, Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley, and tomorrow, God says, Now turn move out into the wilderness. So God basically says to the people, turn around, head back out into the wilderness. This must have stung by the way of the Red Sea. Ouch. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints with the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. Boy, that's underlined in my Bible. God says, just as you said it would happen, okay. Here's another occasion where God says, okay, I'll give you your way then. You say it's not possible. You say that I can't do it, then okay. I'll let you have your way. God says, just as you've spoken, so I will do to you. Verse 29, the carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, all those in the congregation who were aged 20 and above would become accountable for this sin, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, those two who were giving a good report in faith, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones, God says, your children, whom you said would be victims that I was going to kill and they'd be victimized if you followed me. I will bring them in and they shall know the land which you have despised or seemed to be unworthy of your pursuit. But as for you, again, God says, notice this word repetitiously, your carcasses. And that's the way God views the human body. You know, we put all this emphasis, my body, you got to paint it and primp it and take care of it. God says it's a carcass. It's a carcass. It's a good reminder when you're spending a lot of time on your carcass, exercising it, tending it, primping it, prompting it, doing all this stuff, you know, Botoxing it. God says it's a carcass. It's a carcass. It's going to fall in the wilderness. He's talking about their physical bodies. It was going to be a long funeral procession as they would die off in the wilderness, the whole generation, 20 years old and above. And your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years. And boy, this grieves me. And bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. What's God saying there? Your children who are going to get to go into the land. But yet for 40 years, while your generation dies off, for 40 years, though they're going to go into the land, God says, they're also going to have to bear the brunt of your infidelity, of your unfaithfulness to God, of your sin against God. Boy, that's a sobering statement for parents. That God says your children will bear the brunt of your unbelief, of your unfaithfulness, of your disobedience. Boy, that's just a a good reminder. We never sin alone. And how tragic when the sins of a parent or the lack of obedience to God as a parent causes children to have to then unnecessarily become the casualties to bear the brunt of that kind of a thing. Just such a sad and tragic thing as this plays out. Verse 34, according to the number of the days in which you spend or excuse me, spied out the land 40 days. For each day, God says, you shall bear your guilt for one year, namely 40 years. And God says, you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall be consumed and they shall die. Now the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the land, those 10 men who brought the report of unbelief and discouraged and disheartened the people, those very men, verse 37, who brought the evil report about the land died by a plague before the Lord. So they received judgment of God. 
for spreading that unbelief among the people of God and causing them to then not obey God and not follow God. Those who caused him not to obey, God dealt with them very severely. Again, just a reminder, God takes it very seriously. Not just when we reject God or when we disobey God, but if our rejection of God or disobedience of God or our actions in any relation to those things stumble other people spiritually, God takes that very severely. And he deals, remember Jesus said, if any one of you causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, Jesus said it would be better for a millstone to be hung around his neck. And there he's not talking about the little millstone. He's talking about the large grinding millstone. The idea is like a big block of concrete. He, Jesus said it would be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and to jump into the sea. You would fare better that way, Jesus said, than what you're going to face when you do it. So again, these are important reminders. Not only is our own response of obedience to God important that we would trust Him and walk in faith and not reject when He's leading us to do something, but that we would realize, look, we influence other people. And in the same way, our belief, our trust, our confidence can encourage other people. And the times when we choose to say, you know what? Yeah, it's hard, but I'm going to trust God. And I'm going to do the hard thing here. And I'm going to keep obeying God's word. And, and I know there are people looking at me saying, you're crazy, man. Why do you keep, just do this or run back that way or wake out or you don't got to keep, and you say, no, I'm going to obey God. Yeah, it's hard. But I'm going to keep obeying God in the same way how when you do that, you inspire people. And God honors that. And you can inspire other people because then when they're in a hardship, they can say, you know what? I watched him obey God. I watched her stay faithful when it was really hard. She kept trusting God and she did the hard thing. She did the right thing. And people were inspired by that. In the same way, that can negatively really, really damage another person when they see us compromise or they see us say God's not worthy to believe or God's not worthy to follow or they see us reject the will of God or not follow God obediently then they find justification for compromise and God says when you prompt someone else to compromise God says I'm going to be very severe with that because that damages someone very severely spiritually so God here literally takes the life of these 10 men. I mean, we think, man, all they're doing is spreading a little doubt and unbelief. But belief is critical. The Bible says in Hebrews 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is critical. We approach God by faith. We obey God by faith. We experience things by faith. So this is a very important thing in the heart of God, and we see it demonstrated for us here. Look at verse 38. But Joshua, the son of Nun, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, they remained alive. The men who went to spy out the land. So again, faith brings life. These men remained alive because of their faith. Well, verse 39, Moses told the words of this to all the children of Israel and the people mourned greatly. And they rose, look what happens. They rose early in the morning. They went up to the top of the mountain saying, here we are. We will go up to the place which the Lord has promised for we have sinned. And Moses said, now why do you transgress the command of the Lord? For this, look what he says, will not succeed. Do not go up, lest you be defeated by your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned away from the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. Verse 44, but they presumed to go up to the mountaintop. Nevertheless, neither the Ark of the Covenant nor the Lord nor Moses departed from the camp and then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountain came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Hormah. So the people upon hearing of the consequences now, whoa, 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 that doesn't sound good. 40 years in the wilderness, no promised land. Whoa, whoa ne never mind. Those consequences don't sound fun. Okay, here we are, we're ready. Where we, what, how are we doing this again here? Going in, what's the marching order? And all of a sudden now, they have a quick change of heart. They say, we've messed up, we made a mistake, we're willing to do it. And, and Moses says, look, no, no, plans have changed now. Plans have changed now. Don't now try and rush in in self-confidence, presumptively, 
Because see, this isn't faith now. This is human presumption where what they're trying to do is fix through the efforts of their flesh the mistakes that they made by not walking in the Spirit. And that never works. So it says here, they presume to go up. Now, you say, well, wait a minute. It says here that they are in the morning, they're weeping, they're saying we've sinned, they're, they're, they're now trying to go back and do the thing they were supposed to do originally. But what you have here, understand, this is regret for failure and the coming consequence. This is not genuine repentance. This is not genuine repentance. They're presumptuously pushing forward in self-will to try and take back control of things and solve their problems in their own strength. And the result we see here is their failure of presumption due to pride. See, what's the most important thing with God always? That we just be in right relationship with God. And rather than being concerned about, look, what does it take to get back in right relationship with God? That should have been their critical concern. Not, okay, well, we'll just, we'll, we'll just do it then. Sure, okay, what, as long as we can avoid the consequences, okay, let's, let's do it. And they want to rush in presumptuously and God says, look, what's more important? What's most important is, how about you get right with me first in your life? Being right with God. Because being right with God and wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and just enduring the consequences would be way better than to not be right with God and to push on in the flesh in presumption and pride and try and make things happen or fix things in their own strength. Again, God wants us to be in right relationship with Him, to keep short accounts with Him. How wonderful that we have a mediator much greater than Moses, Jesus Christ, who has made provision for all of our failures who's made a way for us to have forgiveness and cleansing and be in right relationship with God by faith alone and the grace of God. The Bible just tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look, that is the most important thing. If we failed to stop, hit the pause button and say, Lord, I don't want to rush back this way, rush forward that way. Lord, I need to get right with you in my heart again. Because from there, Lord, that's where peace is experienced. And that's where then clarity is for the next direction. You know, let me leave you with this thought tonight too. Perhaps the Lord has brought you somewhat to a border situation, to a crossroads, to a, a scenario like them here at Kadesh Barnea. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 15 and 1 Corinthians 10 that these things were written in the Old Testament for our learning and example. You don't have to make the same error that the children of Israel did. Trust God. Obey His voice. Believe him for what he says and walk after him in faith and trust that he is able. Don't miss the opportunities that God sets before you and make the same mistakes that Israel did here. It's not necessary in any of our lives. Let's stand, let's pray and turn our hearts back to the Lord in a time of worship and just let his spirit maybe ruminate some of these things in our hearts as we think through them as we sing. Father, we thank